You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hey, everybody. Peter Maravellis here. I hope this finds you all safe and well. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the spring season. Today's event is brought to you in conjunction with Litquake and Scribner Books. We are delighted to have back in the house, even if it's only a virtual house, it is a pleasure nonetheless to welcome Rachel Kushner back to City Lights. Uh, we're happy to be celebrating the launch of her fantastic new collection of essays. It's titled The Hard Crowd Essays from 2000 to 2020. It is of course published by Scribner Books. She will be joined in conversation by Dana Spiota, somebody else who is no stranger to City Lights. Before we begin, I'd like to bring out our partner in crime for tonight's event, Jack Bulware of Litquake. Hey, Jack. Oh, gosh. Thank you for uh, uh, allowing us to co-present this. Um, as soon as Rachel's book excerpt was published in The New Yorker, immediately I got seven emails about it. it that never happens. And uh, of course, I read it right away and I thought, oh, I, I can't wait for the rest of this book. And, uh, and it's great. I'm, I'm really yeah. glad to be part of this tonight. Yeah, I mean, as as we're both kind of longtime denizens of, of the Bay Area, I mean, I grew up here and you've you've lived here long enough to know better. Um, 1983. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, speaking for myself, I, I, I can say these essays really evoked kind of a flood of memory uh, when we've both known many of the haunts and, and, and of course, many of the characters that are mentioned in, in some of those pieces. But, you know, even in the essays that don't tie into San Francisco directly, I mean, there's a really strong kind of a West Coast aura about a lot of them. And, and they kind of capture that animating spirit of, of kind of life in the 90s. Um, but, you know, not to say that, you know, the essays are all about the West Coast. I mean, there's some really great stuff about art and politics and kind of a range or, you know, wider range of, of, of material. But I think being a San Franciscan, it was kind of, was kind of moved by that stuff. So good to have you with us, Jack. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's a it's a flood of memories. There there's so many names, you know, there names of bars, restaurants, stores. Uh, oh my gosh, uh, it's almost as if it was written by somebody who never grew up here in a way. Because there are things that when you live here for so long, you notice things, but then you forget them. You right. don't necessarily write them down and and write about them later. And uh, and it was great that you know there's some distance there, and you get to sort of revisit. Growing up, you know, and living through the the '90s and the early 2000s here, it was uh, kind of spectacular and raw and strange and kind of out there. And uh, I wish it was around again. Maybe it will be. <laughs> well, listen, Jack, it's it's a real pleasure to have Litquake on board for this. Uh, for those of you who might not be as familiar with uh, Rachel's work, uh, some background may come in handy at this point. She is the best-selling author of three novels the uh, Booker Award and, and a National Book uh, Critics Circle Award shortlisted The Mars Room. Also, of course, the legendary Flamethrowers, Telex from Cuba, which is a finalist for National Book Award. Uh, and she also has a new novel coming out from Karma Press. It's uh, titled uh, The Mayor of Leipzig. Uh, she grew up in San Francisco and makes her home in Los Angeles. So as mentioned, uh, Dana Spiota will be doing the honors tonight. 
Dana is the author of four novels, including The Innocents and Others, which won the uh, St. Francis College Literary Prize and uh, was shortlisted for the uh, Los Angeles Times uh, Book Prize. Also Stone Arabia, uh, Eat the Document, which was a National Book Award finalist in fiction. Uh, also Lightning Field. Dana has received numerous honors for her work. She won a Rome Prize from the American Academy in Rome and also a John Updike Prize in literature from the American Academy of uh, Arts and Letters. Uh, she lives in Syracuse and teaches in the Syracuse University uh, MFA program. So it is a delight and a great pleasure to have both of you here with us. Rachel Kushner, Dana Spiota, welcome to City Lights Live. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter. And uh, thanks to City Lights. And um, it's really an honor to be a part of this event and part of the legendary City Lights. Rachel and I have been friends for a long time, but aside from my personal affection for her, she is one of my favorite writers. And this passionate moving book hit me on so many levels, but let me briefly mention three. One level is the uncanny overlaps in our sensibilities. But on a deeper level and in all her books, I love what she uncovers. I am always discovering new interests like the film and person Anna or the painter Alex Brown or the activist Ruth Wilson Gilmore or the idea of convulsing an image. When I read Rachel's essays, I learn new things or I revisit things in a new way and I get inspired. In other words, her writing makes me feel more alive to the world. But finally, all of the above really happens at the most important level, the sentence level, Rachel writes sentences that are distinctly her own. They work a kind of miraculous geometry wherein things connect, recur, even leap to some alternate, unexpected, sublime plane. There is at least one on every page of this collection. In her own words, quote, but every writer aspires to have some margin of original power, a patterning and order that comes to them as a gift bestowed and is sent to no one else. Rachel Kushner is such a writer, a writer of many gifts, both bestowed and hard earned. So please welcome Rachel as she reads from her new collection. Gosh, thanks, Dana. That's so nice. Coming from you, it means the world to me. Dana is also one of my favorite writers. It's not because we're friends. I was a huge admirer of her work before I ever met her. And she continues to be an author whose books I can't wait to read. I was just going to read a couple short uh, passages from this book. Where's the book. A few years ago, I was in Eufaula, Alabama for a family reunion, not my own, but my in-laws. I stopped at a thrift store. Walking the aisles, I came upon a dollhouse with a yellow plastic roof. I know that roof, I told myself. I know that house. The blue tulip silhouettes on the window shutters. I knew everything. I peered in the little windows at the little kitchen and the tiny bathroom and the photograph of wood grain papering the den. Did anyone ever have a den or just fictional people on television shows and the implied fictional people whom dollhouses bespeak? The dollhouse was stained and dirty. It had a layer that marked it as not mine but its rooms were primal scenes to which I held claims, to which I was returning inside this thrift store in Eufaula, Alabama. I had owned this model of dollhouse, a menagerie, as I understood, peering in the windows of everything that grips me and won't let go. 
Since the little house already owned me, there was no need to buy it. It is amazing what from the past you can drag into your net only to find that it has never left your net. At a restaurant in Venice, Italy, the old waitress insisted we not order and instead she commanded that we be served the catch of the day. The catch of the day were these burglar mugged fishies, bottom feeders, that looked like cartoon drawings of bank robbers, proletarian faces deep fried. As essentially a bourgeois, my decency was offended, or maybe I was offended that these little scofflaws got caught in a dragnet and I felt for them. Anyhow, the waitress forgot to bring silverware. It's said that capitalism relies on a system of selling you something you don't own to someone who doesn't want it, which is identical to how a Lacanian defines love. The lover makes a gift of his banality as if it were a wonder. He pretends to offer something more than his banality, a piece of the world that reflects his love and that he does not in reality possess. In both cases, love and futures, you force something you don't own onto someone who does not want it. And then there's just a short paragraph from an essay on the writer Clarice Lispector. When she was living in Chevy Chase, Maryland in the 1950s, playing or simply being a housewife, Clarice Lispector's own contribution to the American Christmas tradition of holiday decorations was to cover a pine tree on her front lawn with dangling irregular forms in black, gray, and brown. For me, she said, that's what Christmas is. It's important not to let cultishness stand in for the experience of Lispector's sentences directly, and yet the surreal mythologies of her life, like her somber Christmas decorations, are a little too tempting to resist. Her dog smoked cigarettes and drank alcohol. She once held a dinner party and forgot to serve food. She said organ music was demonic, but that she wanted her life to be accompanied by it. She wrote an advice column for a Rio paper with tips such as, act as if your problems don't exist, and no matter how French your perfume is, it's often the grilled meat that matters. Friends spoke of her scandalous cosmetics application, which grew more extreme after she fell asleep smoking and was badly burned. Her makeup evolved even further when, in the years directly before she died, she asked her makeup artist to apply permanent cosmetics monthly while she slept. The way she writes of vanity coheres with this odd detail of her permanent makeup. What others get from me is then reflected back onto me and forms the atmosphere called I. Femininity, after all, is both natural and fake. It's a mask, and it is the unifying impression a woman makes, the thing that keeps her gathered, recognizable to herself and others. I wouldn't have been able to stand not, facing my, not finding myself in the phone book, the elusive G.H. says, and so why not permanent makeup? for the woman who feels she is slipping in more sense than one. Thank you, Rachel. I, I have a couple of questions about that last bit that you read, and that's your epigraph, that line about the eye, right? 
Yeah. Um, and, and curious, it, it seems to come up a lot in the book, throughout the book, which is probably why you chose it as the epigraph. But I want to talk about that David um, Rattray, is that how you say his name, Rattray? Yeah. Um, essay, which I loved. Um, you have this sentence uh, that sort of seems to connect to that. For Rattray, invisibility meant to take leave of the self in order to merge or submerge into life to fully understand it. This seems like a great definition of what a writer does. Is that what you do when you write about people like Cheryl or the kids you grew up with? If we are not, if we are someone whose life is not a poem, do you write stories about others whose lives are? It's such a great question. And it makes me think, oh gosh, maybe I should have read the David Rattray part instead. It's <laughs> always, you know, you never know how to, um, the the kind of the fool's errand of trying to give people a taste of your book by finding the thing that does all the things the book does is a never ending hunt. But so this essay about this writer, David Rattray, who actually um, had translated a book of Artaud that was published by City Lights, I don't know what year, but early 1960s. Um, later, there was a book, was it published while he was alive or after he died, called how I Became One of the Invisible. And that was published by Semiotext. So um, the essay in the book is a is a preface to a new edition of that. And so Rattray was a translator of Artaud. He spoke about eight languages. He went to Dartmouth with my father who knew him in college, although Rattray was older. Um, he was leaving Dartmouth when my father was, I believe, a freshman. and subsequently and not too long after he went to uh, St. Elizabeth's Hospital in DC to visit Ezra Pound and make that pilgrimage that people were making and then wrote up this essay about Pound that's wonderfully funny. So in terms of you know him reading people I can now I can't remember the line as though um, they were books. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. So um, my sense of Rattray in thinking about him and asking people about him, notably my parents when I was writing that, is that he was a person for whom the world was deeply encoded, like in tiny script, like a book is full of information and maybe could only understand people through books. I have a line in that essay that, um, you know, to understand people, he was always quoting poetry. And I've known other people like that who are drawing from literature in order to try to make legible for themselves who other people are and what their spirit is and why they do what they do. And when he does that with Pound, he quotes lines of Pound to understand Pound. Now, I think that like in that essay, the distinction between Rattray and the other people I write about who, um, one of whom I, I was close to myself, Johnny Sherrill was my parents' best friend. We grew up with him. He was with us when, before I was born, when they caravanned in their school bus from St. Louis to Eugene, Oregon, and then was worked in the shipyards in San Francisco, uh, lived in Rodeo. We knew him for a long time. David Rattray was really interested in people who were kind of into the honeypot of life and had a natural relationship to reality that was not mediated by books. You also, though, when you're in in the title essay, you talk about the people who are that you that that are sort of more in the moment than you were. 
and that it was sort of your obligation, almost a moral obligation for you to write about them. Am I correct in that? I mean, that's sort of, how are you different from Rattray or you, do you see any connection between how he views the world and how you do? That's such a good question. Um, I, <laughs> well, you know, I didn't really know Rattray myself. I just heard about him from my parents and it kind of sounded like they made this opposition between people who had a talent for life and people who had a taste for and appreciation of people who had a talent for life. And maybe there's a continuum there that has extremes at either end. And maybe I'm not to the to that extreme. And some of what is in this book is material that's built up from long stretches of my life where perhaps I did have a talent for life, which is to say, maybe I wasn't focusing on my craft or really directly becoming a writer. I was taking the divigating path of being with people who were very rooted in the present tense. And I valued that so much that I was with them there. But as I, as I say in the title essay, a writer is someone who's left early no matter what time they get home. So you're right that I am alluding to some distance that's installed maybe through the act of writing more than, for instance, somebody like Rattray, who can't really understand what people are doing without like reading Tennyson or, you know, reading Faulkner right. or citing some, you know, Sanskrit poem or something. And um, I'm less bookish than that by a lot. Yeah, it seems like you have the perfect approach, which would be, what's the, how did you put it? The people that are not, um, people in the present tense for the, your youth, right? Your, your wild youth, but not really, you're kind of like around a lot of wild people and you were pretty wild. I mean, you did have a big motorcycle accident and so on, but then you kind of transitioned into this person who's, and that's what's so interesting about that essay is your relationship to those memories and your own sort of uh, self doubt about it, right? About whether you remember things accurately, whether you can meet the moment of what those people deserve. It's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. You're yearning in that. And this, uh, anyway, we, we'll get to that in a second, but I wanted to ask you about just the process. I know that everyone's going to ask you these questions about writing fiction versus nonfiction. And I, I read somewhere that you said with your novels, you, you begin with imagery more than an idea or a character. So with the nonfiction, and these range from pieces about writer specific books to uh, journalism, like the prison story and the Palestine. And then there's the, um, the ones that are personal essays, right? Like the girl on a motorcycle. So I guess they might all have different origins, but where do you begin with that? And how is that different as a process from what you write in fiction? Yeah, so yeah, it is kind of a different process for me. Although I sometimes feel guilty to try to, to make declarations about which is harder, how one does one thing, because you know, for some people, the essay is what literature is. For me, fiction is more difficult. And so in a certain way, it's like, it's what I've signed on to do with my life because the process can be so mysterious and fickle and unreliable. And I'm waiting to kind of catch a wave or get the drift and then try to figure out how to sustain it and then how to change it in order to sustain it. And you're managing so many different things at once is a very curious hermeneutic because you need to know where you're going, but then you also need to let happenstance inform you. I think 
some of the ways that we are challenged and we learn in our lives and also as writers is by having encounters that we did not anticipate or predict and that happens in fiction and then you, you you're kind of in a taking mode and you know exactly what's for you and you go with it and you run essays are a little different for me i mean obviously they t the time is shorter but usually they seem to kind of the motor of the essay is a sprung sentence like i come up with one sentence that is doing something in the syntax and it's making something sort of declarative and it's kind of a gambit and it needs to be followed by another. And sometimes I'll have a whole paragraph like that. And those paragraphs will just be kind of floating in the void of the potentiality of the essay that I haven't written yet. And I don't sweat like, how am I gonna link this to that yet? Because I just know by instinct that they're both going in. And if I put them in the essay, then they, you know, are interrelated by virtue merely of their proximity to each other. But then I start to build links and I guess, you know, it depends on what it is. Like some of the journalism is a very different process. Like you mentioned the piece that I wrote from the, originally for the New York Times Magazine about prison abolition and the carceral geographer, geographer, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. That I'd written a version of, they, they said it can be any length and make it long. So, you know, it was like 20,000 words. And it was my version of that essay. And it probably was a pretty good essay, but I think the weakness in it was that I was not speaking to their audience. And they really, you have written for the New York Times Magazine. They want you, they want to be able to countenance everything you say sentence by sentence it's not like writing an op-ed where you just say your thing and then people can fight it out in the comments they want to be on fully on board and i wouldn't want to have to do that all the time it's extremely difficult because you have to keep remembering how to bring in somebody who may have wildly different ideas about how society should be organized and not seem polemical, not seem pushy. It's a kind of seduction that um, I think really benefits from collaboration with an editor. It's arduous, it takes time. That essay took two years to write, but because the subject matter was important to me, ultimately uh, I decided it was worth it. Yeah, it's such a great essay and I learned so much from it. I mean, the abolition of, of prisons, I, I knew something about that, but this, but I love the distinction in the essay between what people think is the problem, you know, the privatization of prisons, but really the violence of the state and the sort of excessiveness of the state essentially. And I really like how in all of your essays, there is this critique of capitalism, but there's also a critique of the violence of the state as well. And I think, is that, partially why you're so obsessed with autom uh, the Italian left and autonomia and all of that, because there is that kind of um, critique built into that. Is, that. is that partially what you found beautiful about that? I don't know. I mean, so autonomia, I wasn't really, um, it wasn't sort of like it fit in with a politics that predated it, Not which isn't to say that I don't have um, my own political interests. I guess I, I always have, but I didn't know anything about Italy until about 2003. And at that point through my husband, 
um, we were in Italy and he knows a lot about autonomia. He's more in the kind of philosophical, political theory side of things. And he introduced me to some people who know a great deal about that, um, one of whom had actually been involved in it and had been the girlfriend of um, somebody that was in the, I guess what you'd call the third wave of the Red Brigades. And the feelings that I had being around people who had kind of sacrificed everything to a political movement in one sense or another made me feel intrigued about autonomia and I wanted to understand it. And there are a lot of subtleties and unspoken things about that movement in terms of who was open and in the streets and part of the student movement and the feminist movement that are, you know, hallmarks of Italy in the 70s and who was part of actually a kind of armed militant movement. And sometimes those are the same people, you know, um, but in two different contexts. And I started asking people questions and people were happy to talk to me and tell me stories. And I felt like this is a gift that I'm getting access to the anecdotal richness, unwritten of a real historical movement that for several reasons had not really been written about and treated as fiction, as art in Italy because people just weren't ready to. Now a little bit more, but when you would ask people, it was still very raw. People for, people that were less eager to talk about the good old days of tumult and revolt. So I think that's more how I got into that, but certainly it's it, it's, it interests me that it was, it's kind of like, it's very different than May 1968. It, you know, it's a movement that did have some lasting effect Although the assassination of the former prime minister, Aldo Moro, seems to have brought on a very hard turn to the right. So, for instance, like by the time I lived in Italy for a year, less than a year, actually, when I was 18, it was the 80s and Berlusconi was about to come to power. Um, Cicciolina was in the parliament, so that was interesting, but it was a very materialistic reactionary culture in Italy. And I didn't know at the time about the 70s. And learning about it helped me to fill in some parts of my own history with the place so that I could see that what I felt was so cold and alienating when I was there was a response to something that had come before it. I really loved also the essay about Nani, Nani um, Balestrini. And you say this really interesting thing in that essay, speaking of the Italian left, you say, I have often wondered if a novelist needed to have contempt for humanity a la Celine to have a great style. So could you talk a little bit about style, cynicism and irony and the idea of being fueled by revolutionary possibility instead? Yeah, wow. That's a tough question, Dana, but it's a really good one. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, sometimes maybe you do this as well when you're writing, you kind of use yourself as the fall guy or foil. So I was kind of, in a way, making fun of my own early admiration for very nihilistic writers like Celine. I mean, is Genet a nihilistic writer? I'd have to think about that. Some of the French stylists tend to be. And I, I used to think that kind of to be a comic writer, you have to be a nihilist because you're sort of willing to make fun of everything. And, um, I always felt this split that the kind of literary style I admire most is achieved by people who are not like me because I'm not 
a nihilist. Um, I believe in life. I believe that every person possesses a soul. I believe in joy, corny as it may sound, like the small puffs of it and the larger streams of it in life. And so I was thinking, well, why do I admire these writers who are so bleak? And then Nani comes along for me. Nani Balestrini is a very unique writer. He's two novels about Italy in the 70s, and they're both magnificent. Um, the Unseen, Ye Invisibly, and We Want Everything, which is about the wildcat strikes at Fiat um, in the hot autumn of 1969-1970. And he has a ferocious sense of humor and an incredible style, but he is, he's also somebody who was kind of full of hope and energy, who wanted to be a part of his time. I mean, I guess Curzio Malaparte would be the opposite of that. Somebody with so much style, he's got too much style. It's like, you know, it, it, it can be too much and doesn't believe in anything. So at one point he's a Catholic, at one point he's a communist, at one point he's a fascist, at one point he's an anti-fascist. Whereas Nani had very clear ethics and politics. And um, I was lucky enough to know him and become friends with him and to see up close that kind of positive energy of somebody who's always looking around him to what's interesting, what's beautiful, who's doing interesting stuff. And those people, like Nani, if I may generalize, tend to not be nostalgic, and they tend to be really interested in what's on the horizon now, what younger people are doing. So yeah, so he, I guess, is an example to me of a person who embodies that kind of positivity. Well, I think you're, I mean, in this collection, um, in, in your books and your novels as well, and particularly in, in, in The Mars Room, and in this collection, there's so much passion and soulful, uh, there is a lot of soul here and it's very moving. And I think I want to get to the sort of crown jewel of this book, which is the title essay, which I know you're going to read from. And then we'll go to the questions. Does that sound good? I have so many questions for you, but I'm going to let the audience ask some too. Sure. Yes. All right. Yeah, I'll just read a little bit from the title essay. All right. Oh, so this is about, um, well, it starts with a reference to a bar that no longer exists um, on Geary between Jones and Taylor called The Blue Lamp, where I worked as a bartender when I was young. Um, and my first shifts, maybe I could just add, where I worked the morning shift there, uh, the early morning shift, the 6 a.m. shift. The owner of The Blue Lamp was named Bobby. I remember his golf cap and his white boat shoes and the broken purple capillaries on his face, the gallery of sad young women who tolerated him in exchange for money and a place to crash. Bobby's brother would drive his Harley right into the bar. Bobby lived out in the Excelsior, but the two brothers built an apartment upstairs from the blue lamp for especially wild nights. I never once went up there. It wasn't a place I wanted to see. Sometimes the swamper, Jer, we all called him, slept up there when he knew Bobby wasn't coming around. But mostly, Jer slept in the bar's basement, on an old couch next to the syrup tanks. Jer's life philosophy was, we'll work for beer. He restocked the coolers, fetched buckets of ice, mopped up after hours, drank 40 bottles of Budweiser a day, and only resorted to harder stuff on his periodic Greyhound trips to Sparks to play slots. That Jer preferred Sparks to Reno was one of the only things about himself that he vocalized. 
In addition to slots, Jer played video poker. We had a machine in the bar called Hot Point that paid out to winners illegally in cash. Whole parts of Jer, I suspected, were missing, in some kind of permanent dormancy. I wondered who he had been before he lived this repetitive existence of buckets of ice and Budweiser day after day after day. He owned nothing. He slept in his clothes, slept even in his mesh baseball hat. I know. I saw. He lived at the bar and never went out of character. He was a drinker and a swamper. He said little, but it was him and me, day after day and night after night. A bartender and her bar pack are a kind of platonic pair, and Jer had my back, literally. After 2 a.m. closings, he would come outside and watch me start my motorcycle, an orange Moto Guzzi I parked on its center stand on the sidewalk. He insisted I call the bar when I got home. I always did. These tenderloin bars were human puzzles. There was one up the street that had a double bed in the back where a man lay all day like it was his hospice. You'd be playing pool and drinking with your friends and there was this man in bed behind rubber curtain. Even the names of these establishments, all part of an invisible tenderloin circuit, evoke for me this half-lit world. Cinnabar, the Driftwood, Jonelle's. I remember a man, youngish and well-dressed, who would come into the blue lamp and act crazy on my shifts. Once he came in threatening to kill himself, I said, go ahead, but not in here. Did I really say that? I doubt it. I can't remember what I said. I never wrote about most of the people from the blue lamp. If I transformed them into fiction, I might lose my grasp on the real place, the evidence of which has otherwise evaporated. The bar is gone. All those people have died. That might be why. Or perhaps a person can write about things only when she is no longer the person who experienced them, and that transition is not yet complete. The person who writes about her experience is not the same person who had the experience. The ability to write about it is proof of change, of great distance. Not everyone is willing to admit this, but it's true. In this sense, a conversion narrative is built into every autobiography. The writer purports to be the one who remembers who saw, who did, who felt, but the writer is no longer that person. In writing things down, she is reborn and yet still defined by the actions she took, even if she now distances herself. In all a writer's supposed self-exposure, her claim to authentic experience, the thing the writer omits reporting on is her galling idea that her life might become a subject put to paper, might fill the pages of a book. That's just fantastic. This is gorgeous. Okay, so do you wanna look at some of these questions that you have? Well, you know, what do you do when you have 88 questions? There's no fair way to vet them. Should we start at the, do you want to start at the top or what do you want to do? Well, it looks like actually a lot of it is like people talking to each other. So maybe we should um, have Peter look through and find some questions. I do have a question for you about what you just read while we're waiting for that. Okay. Which is. All right. So my question is, of those who leave and live the tell, meaning you, and those who are left behind and some of whom die, 
you say the real world places, real world places would never be in books if you didn't write them. And you talk about this idea of writing as testimony, but also that some things are not appropriate to write about in fiction. And is it seem as though nonfiction is the more appropriate place for some of these things, like talking about your friend, Thomas, who died? Well, I mean, that is such an extreme example of um, Thomas Wenger, you know, who was brutally, horrifically murdered and was a regular of mine at the Blue Lamp. And, um, you know, somebody who, when you're a bartender and you are the one who is assigned to kind of make it through the sagging dead hours of the afternoon, whoever is sort of willing to keep your company, if you like that person, if you don't mind their company, you start to feel a sort of intimacy with them. And a lot of the people who came into the Blue Lamp over those years, you know, were um, involved in their own dramas that kind of trailed into the bar with them. And so I, I was kind of exposed to people's lives and also had friends from childhood who came into that bar and were involved in dramas in the Tenderloin. So the extreme nature of his murder was something that just did not seem to lend itself to fiction. I didn't understand it. And as I say in the essay, kind of in a way like it's blackly comic to say this, but you know, if I put that detail in a novel, people would think I was making it up because uh, it's too extreme. There are things from childhood that I have put in novels and the Mars Room in a certain way was me exploring certain maybe more melancholy aspects of what it was like to be an adolescent in San Francisco and what happened to some of the people that I knew and the sort of sadness of seeing this distance or trying to understand it. So some of that was there and I kind of thought, that I'd gotten it out of my system. But lo and behold, I ended up writing this long title essay from the hard cow, much of which is about San Francisco. And maybe I could say one of the weirder things of writing that essay was, although it's lucky that it was excerpted almost the entire thing in the New Yorker, when you publish something in the New Yorker, it's no longer kind of the bubble of your dream about the past for better or worse they actually contact every single person you mention in the essay. So, you know, my friend Jeannie Hicks, I don't name her, but I say I have a friend who got a job at KFC on Eddy Street in the Tenderloin. This seemed impossibly grown up to me. And I shortly thereafter copied her and got a job at Baskin Robbins. They called Jeannie Hicks, who lives in Bakersfield now, you know, did you work at KFC when you were 15? They called my friend Armin Croft. Did you see an agnostic front show at the Sixth Street Rendezvous and blah, blah, year? You know, was there beer on the floor? Was there a fist fight? And they really went after every single detail. So, so that becomes interesting because in a certain way, then you start to make interventions in reality. Like I mentioned this poster that I remember in the Greyhound station on Sixth Street when you would walk in and it was actually kind of like the design of your uh, paperback from Innocence and Others, where it has a dark silhouette, like a line of a figure. And then it said, runaways call for help. Now, I remember this from taking the bus, which my mother told me would help to build my character to take Greyhound. But after I wrote that essay, um, somebody wrote me and said that they remembered that poster too. And I became afraid that I had inserted that memory into their mind, which isn't to say that I did, I don't know, but you realize that with nonfiction, you start to mess with the record 
even if you're trying to be specific and precise and true to your own memories, they are subjective, but then they can kind of present themselves as objective, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Absolutely. So um, we have uh, a question from Jenny. You wrote about how a person, specifically a writer, could be a tainted magnet. Could you comment on how that might operate for you? Does it change from book to book? I don't remember the context in which I said that, although it sounds very familiar. So mm -hmm. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure what I meant. A tainted magnet. I don't know. I mean, it sounds to me like maybe um, a target. Did Jenny um, elaborate or provide context that I should know from memory alone, but I'm failing to know? <laughs> no, I have other questions. Um, when you're writing of events and feelings from decades ago, how do you return to the experience? What takes you back? That's a really great question. Um, so, you know, it, with some of these essays, like the first essay in the book called Girl on a Motorcycle, which is about the Cabo 1000, a no longer existent um, illegal motorcycle road race where you span like the bottom course of the day. That was the first thing that I ever published. And I, and I wrote it 20 years ago. And looking back over it to put it in this book and to improve upon it, I opened it up. I wrote a new beginning and a new ending. There are so many details and scenes in that essay that I never, ever would have remembered had I not written them down when I was much closer to the kind of, you know, meat of that experience. But there are other essays like the title essay, which I just wrote, um, you know, quite recently. And I, I put the book together and I knew it was going to be called The Hard Crowd. And then I just basically sat down and wrote this essay. And I think, you know, it's as maybe you're telling a story or going through your life, sometimes things really do sort of um, trigger uh, the release of a memory. And Proust has this conception of two different kinds of memory that he calls voluntary memory and involuntary memory. And voluntary memory is a kind of fixed story that you tell, you know, oh, he's telling that story again, meaning like it's a kind of sclerotic hardened account that for Proust doesn't really have any real artistic or intrinsic wealth to it. Whereas involuntary memory is maybe when you would, you know, smell a perfume that you haven't smelled in 30 years and it reminds you of this or that. And I think that writing itself can activate involuntary memory because you start to see into spaces you haven't seen in a really long time. Like when I was writing this essay, I somehow ended up um, talking about Terence McKenna and remembered that I had seen Terence McKenna give this lecture at the Palace of Fine Arts. And then I saw the Palace of Fine Arts and him on the stage and where I was sitting and who was in the audience. And so then I mentioned in the essay that this noise musician, not human, who I don't know, but I knew who he was, was sitting right in front of me. And that was a funny thing because the New Yorker called him, you know, were you at a Terrence McKenna lecture? <laughs> in 1991. Yeah, I was. I mean, you know, you, people probably think like the FBI is after them or something. But so for me, I can start to see things and details in pretty haunting particularity once I'm starting to build the framework that will allow those kind of involuntary memories to come up to present themselves. 
Malcolm has a question. Um, there's a saying that successful people put themselves in the path of opportunity. Do you think the same holds for characters or story in fiction? Like that the character, like that the characters themselves put themselves in the path of opportunity. I don't know because I don't really know what opportunity is. Like um, I'm a little bit afraid of the word success. I once answered a uh, Q and A about you know what do you how do you define success in fiction and I said um, kind of obnoxiously success is for losers. So there's something about I don't know what success means and in fiction I think maybe this is also a cliche but people more often than encountering or putting themselves in the path of opportunity put themselves in the path of ruin and i think that ruin is a more dynamic place for a writer and you know one could explore that or step back from it and think about it but maybe it's related to how memory works and most people seem to remember traumatic events more than they remember happy and good events which isn't to say that fiction can't be happy but that always seems like something you're pulling off when you find a comic moment something comic it's a magic trick that happens so i don't know maybe that's putting yourself in the path of opportunity the opportunity to try to to be funny or to say something, but about it's hard to differentiate between what the writer is doing and what the characters in the book are doing. We have a, a question from Peter Kwong. Uh, do you feel that maybe kids who grew up in a certain era share communal memories, like growing up in San Francisco in the 70s is full of shared moments and, and scenes? Yes, I do feel that, but I would maybe even um, particularize it to not just an era, but kids who grew up in a certain world within San Francisco. And I'm gonna just be blunt, it's the kids who went to public school in San Francisco in the 70s and 80s. We all traversed a world together and the particularity of that world, I'm not saying that it's you know special or different. Everybody has a world that they traversed and that stays inside of them as memory. And ours is ours. And those who experienced it do feel bonded, I think, for life in a way. And it's something I've thought about a lot since the, that essay was published in The New Yorker because of the number of people who reached out to me and wanted to talk about their own memories of this same world that we shared. Mm. Uh, Andrew has a question. Can you talk a bit about the influence of Don DeLillo on your work? I would say, you know, Dana and I are both influenced by Don DeLillo. In fact, when she mentioned in her really complimentary introduction, something that I had said, a quote about things that are coming only to you and no one else. It reminded me of something I think that she told me that Don said to her, I shouldn't speak for her, but I'm going to, which is that um, there are things that only you know about the world, um, which is, is such a beautiful way to describe why we write fiction and what we do. Yeah, DeLillo's work is unique. It's phenomenal. This year is the 50th anniversary of his first novel, um, Americana 
which is one of the stranger books and ends with a drunken orgy on a test track and i actually just asked him recently what that was about and he said i have no idea but then told me a story about going to a sears and roebuck truck tire test track in picos texas when he was an ad man and that was as if to account for how it was he was able to create a scene to close a novel that evokes radical pathologies in american life and you know i think that he's he's mysterious his writing it you know it's it changes a lot the silence his new book is really interesting so yeah he he's a writer i would uh that i'm very interested in and admire a lot so we're, we're coming up on the hour but i think we have time for maybe a couple more questions hazel asks uh, in the New York Times review, Dwight Garner mentioned the phrase, at the party, she was kindness in the hard crowd from the cream song in the white room. Is that in fact where your title came from? Uh, it is. And actually I do, I mentioned that in the title essay. It all comes clear, becomes clear, at least somewhat clear where I heard that song and, um, and why I made it the title of this book. It's a good line. Are there any current writers that have especially helped in getting you through the lockdown days during this COVID year? Current writers is, I mean, well, I'm looking forward to reading Dana's book. Um, it's always hard to remember what you've been reading when you're asked that on the spot. Any current writers? I, I read all the time, but less living writers about movies so many movies yeah <laughs> i mean we were talking about movies um before we went live i watch movies almost every night and dana and i were discussing paul newman and piper laurie in the hustler which is one of the great films and also stars jackie gleason as minnesota fads and George C. Scott. And I love the way that rolls off the tongue. Say it with me, George C. Scott. Um, <laughs> he's so incredible in that film. And Paul Newman seems to be embodying one facet of a character that actually steps out of that film and travels into other films, namely Cool Hand Luke and HUD. HUD is, for whatever reason, my favorite movie of all time. And I revisited that during quarantine and I recommend it as a movie that also not only is wonderful in every way and can teach you a lot about fiction in the way that character is established so quickly. What does he do in the very beginning of the film? He runs over Patricia Neal's flower bed in his Cadillac. She says, you parked on my flowers. So that movie is about a pandemic basically among cows not people and um and um they end up having to kill all of these cows that have foot and mouth disease at the end of the film and it is totally devastating but you think about contagion i watched it very early in the pandemic and now we've all become almost in inert is that the word we're very used to the idea of a pandemic but at first it was quite strange, like we were living in a sci-fi movie and then you realize 
no, these are cycles and waves of issues that affect humanity, you know, in, in rhythm, in and out over, you know, every hundred years or so, and among cattle as well. So it sounds like uh, Paul is suggesting that uh, he would love to read an essay by Rachel about HUD, the hustler, and Paul Newman. So would I. I'll think about that. <laughs> um, I wish we just sort of had a, a channel that we could just flip on and this conversation could just go on, but we are out of time, uh, regretfully. Um, but really, man, thank you so much. This has been just such a delight. I'm going to encourage everybody, you know, please do buy this book. Um, they are all signed. And we also have Mayor of Leipzig. And uh, that is also for sale. So um, it's a very and a gorgeous, book. beautiful, it's more gorgeous. of a novella. You were very kind calling it a novel. It's more like a short story that's been designed into a book, but um, a fun, a fun project for me. Yeah. And a gorgeous, gorgeous artifact too. So encourage everybody, please do buy a book tonight. It does help City Lights immensely in COVID times. We are not out of the woods yet. So each sale kind of helps us continue with this program. Um, we can bring you cool events like this one. Also, you know, City Lights is open for business seven days a week from noon to eight. We uh, essentially practice safe distancing, wear a mask when you come down, you can browse our stacks again. Uh, we're also publishing us as well as a bookstore. Please check out our website, www.citylights.com. Hope you'll all be safe and well and uh, look forward to seeing you again in the near future. Rachel, Dana, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Dana. And I just want to add one thing about people who want signed books. I drove 600 miles to sign those books. <laughs> On a motorcycle. No, <laughs> no, I in my car, <laughs> in my very unsexy Subaru. So <laughs> thanks, everyone. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.